According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in the Bible this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, continuing our study in the life of Christ. Coming to the uh, conclusion of the early ministry and getting ready to proceed on into the Galilean ministry. The bulk of the Life of Christ series actually is the Galilean ministry, at least uh, leading up to the Passion Week itself. The final week, the Passion Week, the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection, that is a significant portion as well. But we're still dealing with these introductory matters, including uh, really the first four chapters in the Gospel of John. After the events that we look at today, we will then move on into the material in John chapter 4. We will deal with the Samaritan woman at the well. And that is really the last significant event before uh, launching into the Galilean ministry. If you do have a copy of our Harmony of the Gospels, you will recognize that in the main portions... This uh, beginning of Jesus' ministry has 12 sections. We're looking at number 9 right now. Uh, Number 11 is the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, Numbers 10 and 12 are really just short transition uh, verses as uh, this harmony has been broken down. When we get to the Galilean ministry of Jesus, though, you can tell what an extensive section it is because it has a total of 56 different parts to it and uh, really makes up the bulk of the life of Christ. The the Passion Week has 41 events, for example. And then uh, following the resurrection through the ascension, the last portion of this study will have 13 sections to it. So be a good idea if you don't already have one to pick up one of our harmonies of the gospel that will kind of give you a scorecard to follow along with in the process of this study. How long is this study going to take? Well, I hope the rapture comes first. But should the rapture not come, I anticipate life of uh, Jacob took us uh, two years. Life of David took us the better part of three years. Life of Christ may be a three to five year study altogether. Hard to say. All right. John chapter three, then looking at verses 22 through 36, the last uh, almost half of this chapter. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we're filled with the spirit. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day to guide us in the truth. We ask this morning for distractions to be set aside. We ask, Father, that you would give us concentration. Father, we ask that in the message of your word that we would be diligent to study to show ourselves approved. And Father, we thank you that God the Holy Spirit indwells every born-again believer in Jesus Christ, that you have made provision for all things necessary for life and godliness. And we just thank you again for the faithfulness of your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. As we have broken this down for you so far, I recognize it's a couple of weeks now since we were here. I had a week off last week with the Schaefer Conference in California. Appreciate being uh, able to cut free from here and go out there and participate in that. So now uh, it has been a couple of weeks. Let's just remind ourselves what's gone on here in that we are still very early in the life of Christ's ministry. He has come to be baptized, being at least 30 years of age. He has been baptized. The Holy Spirit has descended uh, in visible form. The Father has spoken out of the heavens, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He then went forth into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And uh, we've studied the issues there. He returned back following that temptation event and uh, began to accumulate a number of disciples, at least six disciples at this point. I do not believe he has the other six. I do not believe he is yet to the point where he has accumulated all 12. There is a point coming up here where even the six that he does have are going to be considered really on a part-time basis because they're going to go back to their fishing business and other pursuits uh, off and on here in these early these early months of his ministry. But there will come a point, though, where he will call them to leave their fishing business to become fishers of men and that these six, in addition to another six, 
will form what are commonly referred to as the Twelve, the Twelve Disciples or the Twelve Apostles. So we're still quite early. He's beginning to gather apostles, six of them at this point. He has accomplished his first miracle, that is the turning of water to wine at this wedding in Cana, chapter 2. And then he returns to Jerusalem for a Passover and uh, drives out the money changers and the things that we have been observing there. In this first trip to Jerusalem, after the uh, baptism, he will drive out the money changers, but he will also encounter some positive volition. In this case, it's Nicodemus the Pharisee in the first part of chapter 3, and then the uh, remainder of what's described here brings us up to date with where we are. All right, looking at verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John, that's the baptizer, also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now that comment there in verse 24 is quite interesting because it's presupposing that John's readers here are familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's presupposing that being written decades after the Synoptic Gospels that the readers that are receiving this Gospel are familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's as if he's writing a story that the readers, they know the rough outline. They know the basic text that Jesus is born, he's baptized, he ministers, he dies, he's raised again. John's audience knows this story. But now the Apostle John is coming back and retelling the Gospel story now for a fourth time. And that's not to repeat everything that the Synoptic Gospels covered, but to actually reveal the Father and to actually reveal the deity of Jesus Christ and a number of other concepts that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not present as thoroughly as the Gospel of John is going to do. So you have comments like this here in verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison, and it recognizes the function of the Gospel of John being the last or the fourth of the four Gospel records. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And this is about as far as we got with it a couple of weeks ago. And I want to return to some of these things and reemphasize them before we proceed. First of all, the earliest ministry of Jesus Christ with his disciples was a baptism ministry similar to that of John's. The earliest ministry of Jesus Christ with his disciples was a baptism ministry similar to that of John's. And I hope that we We'll look at this and recognize that John's baptism ministry or this early baptism ministry of Jesus and his disciples has nothing to do with what you and I would associate baptism today in the stewardship or the dispensation of the church. And we want to understand the scripture in the day and age it was written, not try to read back into it with our modern understandings or current understandings of how we approach a subject. And that's true here especially, but that's true throughout scripture. All right. We understand baptism today from the framework of the church age. And that a believer in Jesus Christ is saved by grace through faith. He becomes a part of a local church. He's growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that with that teaching, he can participate in the the ritual of water baptism. That he can go forth and in a ritual of water baptism, he can profess his faith in Jesus Christ. That he can identify with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that he wants through the ritual of water baptism to portray that identification with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we recognize the function of water baptism as a church age ritual in from our standpoint. But we want to be careful that when we look back to the baptism of John and when we look at this early ministry of Jesus Christ and his disciples, that that's not what's taking place. That the water baptism of John was a baptism to identify with the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and the primary method, the primary message is repent. And the primary activity with that repent message is they were coming to him and they were confessing their sins. See, now when we engage in water baptism today in the church, we make no reference to sins or to the confession of sins. That's between you and the Lord. That's been forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ. And when a believer today is 
baptized, in, such as we do uh, occasionally in water baptism, we don't ask anybody to confess their sins. We don't ask any, any pr- uh, public confession of sins, as we see taking place here in this early uh, ministry of the uh, John the Baptist. So some of these things are important to, to comment on just simply to recognize the differences, even if we don't take the time to totally break down a thorough doctrine of what John's baptism was all about, we can at least spot some differences and recognize what John was doing is different than what we do in practice and in doctrine in the church. These are dispensational differences and very important to study uh, more thoroughly perhaps in another setting. But this is the ministry that Jesus has with his disciples, and they are proclaiming this coming kingdom. We're even going to find references to the gospel of the kingdom. And when we come to those references, we're going to have to stop and recognize, now is this the same as when we think of the gospel today? When we proclaim the gospel today, what are we doing? We're talking about faith in Jesus Christ. We're talking about the uh, forgiveness of sins. We're talking about his death on the cross as payment for our sins. That's the gospel as we proclaim it today. In other words, that's the good news that we present. But the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, was the offering of the kingdom to Israel, which was at hand. That Israel had the opportunity to accept their Christ to accept their Messiah and that there are kingdom implications as it relates to Israel that are different than what we associate with in terms of good news, in terms of salvation and eternal life. This is what's being presented here. Now, we will also see in these early stages as the gospel of the kingdom is being announced that Jesus Christ will very clearly say, um, I have been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that he is going to be focusing his ministry on the Jewish people in particular and not the Gentiles at large. And there will be occasions where Gentiles will come even with a greater faith than he's able to find among Jewish people to say, yes, Lord, I understand that you're here to minister to the, to the Jews, but can I at least get some scraps? I'm, I'm a Gentile dog. Can I at least get some scraps or some crumbs or whatever you would feel free to drop under the table, so to speak. And Christ, Jesus would be so amazed at that faith that he's finding among the Gentiles. But still, we can look at those passages and understand that in the early portion of the Lord's ministry, he is dealing strictly with the, the, the Jews as opposed to the Gentiles. See, we will notice a change, though, when the rejection becomes apparent and when Christ begins to prepare his disciples for the cross, that there is a very noted change in his approach, in his message, in his emphasis and that will be uh, quite remarkable when we get to that point in the uh, in the life of Christ. But for now, though, it's very early. Now, though, he is baptizing. Now, he is preparing Israel for entrance into the uh, into the kingdom. So it is a baptism ministry. So point A: This was a foundational time for the Lord with the men he was training. He was spending time with them there. I think it's very significant that in addition to teaching is the concept of spending time as a key attribute, as a key element in training. Obviously, if we train men for the ministry, if we train believers, whatever their spiritual gift is, one of the things we're looking at here in Austin Bible Church is actually putting into effect a full-scale training ministry that will not only take a pastor teacher and train him in what he needs, Greek, Hebrew, systematic theology, and so forth, not only training a pastor for ministry, but training every spiritual gift for ministry. So when a believer steps forward and says, uh, you know, I have the gift of hospitality, what kind of training do I need? Or I have the gift of giving, what kind of training do I need? Or I have the gift of helps, what kind of training do I need? We, we want to do more than just simply train pastors. Why do we train, we go to great lengths to train pastors and place them into service, but when a, a Sunday school teacher comes along, we just kind of, Throw them to the wolves and say, well, there you go. <laughs> Here's the curriculum. Have fun. No. Sunday school teachers should have training. Evangelists should have training. The gift of helps, the gift of any gift should have training, biblical training to utilize their spiritual gift function in their priesthood. And part of the training is not just simply academic. It's not 
teaching, although it has to include teaching, but it's also going to include what we see here, and that is spending time. That is imparting not only teaching, but imparting our very lives, as it were. And Paul addresses that, Peter addresses that. Throughout the New Testament, we find that as a pattern. In the book of Hebrews, we find that. To remember those who led you, who taught the Word of God to you, and considering their, not their teaching, but rather their conduct, imitate their faith. And so there's a lot more in terms of training than simply the academic process of teaching, but there is actually the imparting of lives spending time with. And that's really a feature that I was very thankful for in terms of my training under Pastor Ralph Braun in the in the availability that he made of himself uh to me and to Sharon and and the the transparency and the availability and the the uh if if I needed answers, uh, questions answered, if I needed time, he was there. And I can appreciate that. We see the Lord doing that here. He was spending time with them. If you want to do a word study on diatribo, uh, you can. The idea of passing time uh, to wear away, to consume. In some cases, some would view that as a waste of time. But Christ didn't view that as a waste of time. He viewed it as a very profitable use of time. In fact, redeeming the time for the benefit of the disciples. In other words, he didn't just simply grab them and say, okay, let's go. Um, John's got this covered here in, in this region, so let's not step on his toes. Let's you know, grab you six and let's run into Galilee. Let's find six more and let's get this thing going. See, Christ wasn't in a hurry. He was... Delaying where he needed to delay, he would eventually move on when he needs to move on, but only in keeping with the Father's will. Subpoint so B, this was a baptism ministry urging repentance on the part of unbelieving Israel. And some of the things there that we took a look at. Point C, this ministry was co-located with John's continued baptism ministry. See, they're within sight of one another. They're within sight of one another. And we see this in verse three or 23a. John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim. And this then causes us to ask, well, you know, how close should ministries be to one another? And what happens with the competition between them? See, is, uh, you know, is Austin big enough to support more than one Bible teaching local church? And what do you do with other Bible teaching local churches? See, and what do you do with you know, are there jurisdictional matters in hand? Well, see, all of that I recognize we can look, turn to the New Testament for our authority, and then the rest of it we simply leave in Jesus Christ's hands as the head of the church. He'll work those things out when it comes right down to it. I've had some very, I've known believers with a very, very rigid view on, on um, jurisdiction in terms of right pastor and right local church and different doctrines that they've had in times past. And they look at a message and they see, you know, John to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? And they say, aha, see, there's only one valid church in Pergamum and there's one valid pastor in Pergamum. There's one valid uh, place in Pergamum and everybody else doesn't belong there. See, well, let's be careful in how we are approaching this because what if Jesus Christ is the head of the church? What if he plants 12, 20, 100, 300 lampstands in Austin, Texas? In any event, I would never presume to be the uh, the, the angel of the church of, of Austin. Say, what a kind of responsibility would that be? All right. Now, the messenger of the local church at uh, the corner of Aggie Lane and Woodrow Avenue? Okay, fine. <laughs> I'll accept that responsibility. That's where the Lord has planted this lampstand. And there we have it. No, these ministries are functioning side by side, and rather than get distracted by the competition, we should rather celebrate the way in which fruit can be born in each ministry. See, and if one ministry is bearing fruit, I can praise the Lord. If one ministry is bearing more fruit, I can praise the Lord. And I'm not going to look at one that's bearing more and somehow become discouraged at this other one that's not bearing as much. Because each one is doing what their function and design is to do based on grace. And so we will look at that here in this context as well. Point D. This training ministry had success in terms of the positive volition of people coming to be baptized. 
But I would be very cautious in looking at numbers as the only avenue of success. Because that's the approach, the finite approach that these disciples of John are, are dealing with. And we can see success. In the second part of verse 23, people were coming and were being baptized. We look at that and say, aha, success. Wait a minute. It's not the only description of success. Likewise, in verse 26, when these are grumbling, uh, the grumbling starts to take place, um, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So there are numbers taking place. People are going. They are being baptized. There is actually ministry taking place. And you can view that as success, but you can also view other aspects here of success by virtue of the disciples being trained. What's happening They're learning. They're being prepared. They're going to go forth in the book of Acts and they're going to be able to minister with this in their training, with this event in their background. They're going to uh, travel the Roman world and they're going to encounter people that are only familiar with the baptism of John. And you know what? They're going to be equipped to deal with that because they have this in their background as well. They have this as a part of their training as well. They're going to say, yes, I understand that ministry. I used to be in that ministry. But now let me tell you about a greater baptism. See. Success. This co-located ministry was not described in the Synoptic Gospels. Matter of fact, if we didn't have the Gospel of John, we wouldn't know anything about this. If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all we would know about was that he was baptized, he was tempted in the wilderness, and he launched into a Galilean ministry with twelve disciples. All right. The Gospel of John is helping to fill in not only some of the missing detail, but giving us, in reality, the 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 uh, the patrological information of the revealing the Father and why it was that the Father had given these twelve to the Son, and why it was that the Son had kept those twelve, including the betrayer. Okay. All of this leading up to that great high priestly prayer of John 17, that of all the Father has given, and He lost. None except for the one that must be lost, that is, the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot, who was never saved in the first place. This co-located ministry was not described in the Synoptic Gospels. And that's why we were taking this approach in a Life of Christ series such as this to give a harmony of all four Gospel records and to go through in a sequential outline. And we are covering the Life of Christ in a sequential outline. We have no need to, to teach verse-by-verse parallel passages, as it were. We can teach one primary text and then bring in details as appropriate from parallel gospel accounts. And that's what we're doing here. Point two, the co-located ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist prompted debate and comparison of the two ministries. And I find it interesting is that the agents that were utilized to spark this debate, to draw these comparisons, and to produce the resentments were the same minions that will, in about three and a half years' time, will be putting Jesus Christ on the cross. All right? And these are the Jews, as called here in the text. These are the the religious adherents of the system as it is in place here in Jerusalem. The co-located ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist prompted debate and comparison of the two ministries. And we see in verse 25, therefore, there arose a discussion. Now, (laughs) discussion is fine. I like discussion. There's a place for discussion. There's a place for debate. But it's... There's a wide range of approaches given anybody that you might be talking with. And you might find very quickly that the person who has started this conversation with you is not really asking questions because they are curious or because they, they want information, because they're genuinely, uh, they genuinely desire to learn. You'll sometimes encounter the fact that somebody is approaching you with a question and they are in reality quite hostile. They have an agenda that's driving that question. They, they, they're not looking for information. They're looking for a conflict in confrontation. And they want to spark 
a uh, a uh, a heated debate, as we might say, with respect to, and it might be very innocuous. It might be very uh, uh, seem to be quite innocent as it starts. You know, let's talk about purification, for example. But out of the basis of this, now we can then really start to drive wedges in different places because the uh, the Pharisee approach to purification, for example, would be one matter entirely. In fact, that was kind of the the uh, the sine qua non of Phariseeism. The, the the summary of Phariseeism is that they were set apart ones, that they were so pure in their own minds, they were so righteous and so separate that they were better than any other Jew in the world. That they were separated and holy and followers of the laws to the righteousness which was found in the law, blameless. And so obviously issues on purification they'd be very interested in. Likewise, the Sadducees and their priestly background would be very interested in purification. Uh, John the Baptist in, in a baptism ministry, if, if they really were the brood of vipers and had no understanding of what the warning was all about, then they would be viewing these baptism rituals as some concept of purification. See, without totally understanding what it meant to be uh, literally purified as opposed to ritually purified, to have your heart prepared for the kingdom as opposed to having uh, having your body ritually prepared for some uh, Levitical observance. All right, and then now Jesus and his disciples start baptizing, and so all of a sudden now this becomes the avenue by which a debate can be launched, and this becomes a a, uh, a realm in which uh, a wedge can be driven. And I'll say it again, the agents that were employed here are the very same agents that will crucify Christ in three and a half years from this event. All right? That is the religious, observant Jews in Jerusalem functioning under their legalistic system of uh, pharisaical uh, legalistic, Judaistic religion. All right? And that's probably a phrase that I'm going to repeat uh, again and again and again and again. We have it here. They're simply called a Jew in verse um, 25. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And that kind of strikes us as rather odd. See, because they were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. John the Baptist was a Jew. All of these disciples were Jews. The Pharisees were Jews. The Sadducees were Jews. Okay? They were all Jews, racially speaking. Now, Herod wasn't, or Herod was, no, he wasn't. And the Romans obviously weren't racially Jews. But when the, the Gospel of John, the other Gospel accounts will, will reference a Jew, a Uidos in the Greek. What they're referencing, and they're, dis, they're, they're drawing distinctions between this crowd and the Galileans, for example. Peter and John and Jesus and all these Galileans would not be considered Eudaios, that is, the Judeans. Okay, And maybe the term Judean might help us to consider this a little bit better than the term Jew as simply an aspect of translation. In other words, these are Judeans. These are, yes, they're racial Jews, but they are uh, observers of the Judaic religious system. That is, they're following the teachings of the Pharisees. They're submitting to the legalistic structure of the, San, of the uh, Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. All right? And so if you think of these Judeans as religious members of this group, and this was so vital to them. The idea of being cast out of the assembly was a huge uh, motivation. It, it gave the Pharisees a lot of power. It, it produced a lot of fear. We'll see, for example, if you just hold your finger there, glance over, uh, there's a couple of easy spot, uh, places to spot this, but in John chapter 9, where you have the, uh, the man born blind and the... Uh, the fear of the Jews that's referenced here and um, they don't want to get driven out of the assembly and they start bringing in this man's family and uh, his parents if you'll notice in John chapter 9 
um, they're questioning him. Verse 18 says, the Jews then did not believe it of him. The Judaizers, the, the Judeans, did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. Okay, now they're Jews. But understand the, the, the term, eudaios, the term is specifically with reference to the practitioners of Judaism, the, the Judeans here in and around Jerusalem that were a part of this religious operation. They were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Okay, and this was a very real fear. I mean, if they, if they were expelled, if they were excommunicated, for example, if they were expelled out of this religious system, then they were totally shunned, as it were. And start to consider that meant no Passover observance, no uh, partaking in the, uh, in, the, in the various feasts of, of Pentecost or of trumpets or the Day of Atonement or, you know, all of these things that were very important to Old Testament believers, Jewish believers now. So we're going to be careful with our use of the term Jew when we come across it, the eudaios in the Greek text, that we will recognize that we're not talking about racial Jews because that pretty much covered all of them. But uh, and we're not contrasting Jew and Gentile. We're talking about the the Judean, the uh, the religious Jew that was participating in the uh, religious system as controlled by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, under the authority and structure of the Sanhedrin. All right? And that was a concept totally alien to the Old Testament. The, the Lord of the Sabbath came and didn't recognize the Sabbath that they had perverted, that they had turned it into. See? All right, we'll have more comment on that in upcoming classes. But don't get distracted by that term Jew when we come across it in various places, because we'll come across it many times in the uh, Life of Christ series. Now, debate and comparison. And what did that very quickly lead to? Point three, the comparative questions led to John's disciples becoming alarmed at John's ministry declining. The comparative questions led to John's disciples becoming alarmed at John's ministry declining. You'll notice, it almost seems like a disconnect, because in verse 25, they're discussing purification. But in verse 26, John's disciples are now alarmed at what's going on with Jesus and his disciples. Have you notice that? you got verse 25. You've got these agents, and think of them as agents, because that's what they are. John very rightly called them a brood of vipers. We know that they are not friendly. <laughs> this world is not our home. When we are encountering these unbelievers, we need to recognize who they are serving. And isn't it interesting how they can come along and supposedly just, well, well we, just, we just have questions. We just want to talk about purification. Let's just talk about theology. And in the process of this discussion, they're able to bring Jesus into the, into the picture and able to sow some slander, able to sow some uh, discontent. And lo and behold, the disciples of John the Baptist picked up on that immediately. Ah, you're right. This is an issue. This is a problem. Look at that. He's gathering more than we are. And I find this to be quite interesting, in particular when we observe other methods that the adversary employs when he creeps in unnoticed, when he sows discontent, when he plants seeds of doubt and questions and so forth, and how uh, he's so subtle about it and 
people uh, bite the you know bite the bait and they they swallow the whole thing hook line and sinker we say and that's what we observe here hmm. rabbi verse 26 they came to John and said to him rabbi he who was with you beyond the jordan to whom you have testified behold he is baptizing and all are coming to him I find this admission to be one of the most startling of the passage, that these disciples of John understood what John had testified. And they're still staying with John. They knew that he testified that here's the Christ. And yet they didn't follow the Christ, they stayed with John. And I find that to be amazing. But John the Baptist, and this is the fourth point, there's only five we're gleaning out of this text, by the way. Point four, John the Baptist was not at all alarmed over these circumstances and details. You know, they're coming to him in a panic mode, saying, Rabbi, Rabbi. But he's not at all alarmed. See? And that's the difference divine viewpoint can make. That's the difference that having your eyes on the Lord versus having your eyes on people makes all the difference in the world. Because John the Baptist has his priorities aligned properly. He knows that he's accomplished his purpose. He knows that he has been the, the, the herald, the forerunner. He's announced the Christ. The, the very telling statement here about he must increase and I must decrease in verse 30. It's one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible because it's a testimony to John's maturity and understanding that this is the, this is the, the plan and program of God. And he's not worried about it. He's excited about it. But his disciples, on the other hand, don't have divine viewpoint perspective. They're looking at people. They're looking in with human viewpoint. They're seeing their numbers dwindle. They're seeing, you know, more and more vacancies in the parking lot. And they're looking across the street, and that parking lot is packed. And they've got some resentments about it. But John the Baptist was not at all alarmed. See, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Well, there's a perspective. It's like Job when he says, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be in the name of the Lord. He understood that. It, if, if, Jesus has, if people are going to him and learning from him, then that's because the Father has so directed it. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. In other words, I'm just the forerunner. And you know I said that. It's almost a rebuke. Why are you still here? <laughs> you know? Now, I find it interesting, and John still has people that want to learn, so he keeps teaching. They are called disciples. That means they're learners or students. And I guess you just keep teaching because they keep showing up. <laughs> and you hope that eventually you'll teach and they'll learn something and they'll leave, which was his purpose. <laughs> He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. What a great imagery that we have here. And of course, we've got other things we're looking at in our marriage study, for example, at Christ in the church, the bride of Christ and the different things there. So this uh, coming to this in our life of Christ study is interesting because it, it just dovetails so well. But John understood that he was not the groom <laughs> he says, I'm, I'm just a friend of the groom. I'm the, you know, today we call it the best man, see. And we, what a good illustration because we can all relate to this. We can all understand. In fact, the disciples, Christ's disciples had just been to a wedding. And now here's the baptizer using a wedding illustration to say, you're missing the point here. He's the groom. He's the celebrity. He's the one that's at the end of the, uh, the, of the ceremony is taking the bride home. I'm just the friend of the, of the groom. The real celebrity is Jesus Christ. All right, it's not the not the best man that goes off with the bride when the when the wedding's over. It's the groom that goes off with the bride when the wedding's over. He must increase, but I must decrease. And what a what a faithful testimony. And he's celebrating that. Not grumbling about that. Not grumbling about that at all. Now, let's get to some subpoints on this, because I think this is very important. Five issues you want to get under this. Subpoint A. 
True ministry blessings come from God the Father. True ministry blessings come from God the Father. As John testifies here in chapter 3 and verse 27, we come across it again in John 6 and verse 65. True ministry blessings. Now, there can be satanic promotion. There can be false uh, growth that occurs. And through human effort, you can build externally, you can build a human operation. But true ministry blessings come from God the Father and come from no other source. John 3.27 And also, don't confuse church growth with numerical growth. Because we, if we never add another family ever again in the next 20 years of Boston Bible Church, the families that we do have are still growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so there's spiritual growth that has nothing to do with numerical growth, see, whether we add bodies or not. The problem is, is churches are too busy counting, you know, warm bodies in a pew, see, or cold bodies in a pew, I guess. If you, they don't have to be living, I guess. You can count dead people in your membership and use that as a way to boost your esteem somehow. All right, we prefer live bodies, of course. They're easier to teach. And... Uh, <laughs> But we're not worried about numerical growth either. We're trusting in spiritual growth in those that are a part of this ministry. Over in John chapter 6 and verse 65. Long chapter here in chapter 6. Verse 64 says, There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus, who knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who it was, singular, that would betray him. See, Judas was not the only unbelieving disciple. I believe he was the only unbelieving disciple among the twelve, that the other eleven were all believers. I, I, I don't think you can debate that. But he had disciples beyond the twelve, some of whom weren't even saved. He knew who were not, who did not believe, that's plural, and who it was that would betray him, that's singular. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. True ministry blessings come from God, the father. James 1:17. every perfect thing, every good thing, every perfect gift bestowed comes down from above from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. First Corinthians three, seven. First Corinthians three, seven. What then is Paul? What then is Apollo? Servants through whom you believed. I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. And this is true at every realm of growth. God is accomplishing his purpose in and through us for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. Also chapter 4 and verse 7. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Whatever fruit you might be bearing is a grace gift. So don't boast like you did it. Boast that he did it. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. True ministry blessings come from God the Father. Secondly, this is the great principle behind grace giving. This is the great principle behind grace giving. We can get relaxed over what we have because it's not ours anyway. We don't get uptight about what we have and what we're trying to hold on to, whether it's a church member or whether it's a, it's a dollar or whatever it is that we're being so tight-fisted with and so stingy with. All right, You can apply this financially. You can apply this in, in, in terms of people, in terms of ministry. See? First Chronicles 29 and verse 14. What do you have that you did not receive? We just read that out of 1 Corinthians 4. Let's see about 1 Chronicles now. Don't get to Chronicles very often, do we? 1 Chronicles 29. See, this is the great principle behind grace giving. Verse 14 says, but who am I? You know... David understood such principles of grace and he recognized that even giving was a privilege. And we don't deserve to give. You know, we can think of grace in terms of salvation. I don't deserve eternal life. 
I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve the privilege of giving financially to support the ministry. I don't deserve that. Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. You know, when you give, you're not giving your money. It's because it's his anyway. It's his to begin with. You're giving his money. He's the one that graciously supplied. And you count it a blessing. You count it an honor. And likewise, in terms of ministry, if you're teaching the word to five people, well, those are the five people he gave you. And they're not yours. They're his. And if he please, if he's pleased to give you ten, if he's pleased to give you fifty, if he's pleased to give you a hundred, however many, they're still not your people. They're his people. Which is what Peter tells us in First Peter. He tells pastors, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Not your flock, Peter. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight voluntarily, not under compulsion. Well, these are all grace principles and they apply to ministry and growth. So we don't, we don't covet people. See, and when someone leaves the church and goes across the street or goes across town or wherever they go, we don't have jealousy that says, oh, well, those are my people. What, you know, why are they going over there? What is it they're offering that we're not offering? See, we can uh, celebrate in grace that uh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He's going to be faithful. And we have to uh, minister to those to whom he has given us to minister to. Point C. John the Baptist understood that his purpose and work assignment was to exalt the one coming after him. That takes humility. When you know that it's your purpose to exalt somebody else, to build up somebody else. See, ego doesn't like that. Ego wants to build up me. (laughs) I want to be the celebrity. I want to be the top dog. I want to be the number one banana. I want to have top billing. John the Baptist understood that's not his role. His role is to be the forerunner, to spotlight the Christ, which ultimately is what we're all supposed to be doing. But even in terms of, you know, in in terms of those who minister and those who serve those who minister, Peter breaks down, for example, the teaching communication gifts and the service gifts. Are the uh, communication gifts superior to the service gifts? Not at all. Both gifts are needed for the orderly function of an assembly. When you think about, uh, you know, think about Moses and his servant Joshua. Or you think of Elijah and his, and how he trained Elisha. Or you think of Elisha and Gehazi. Or you think of any, uh, you know, David and Jonathan. You think of well, <laughs> I don't want to go into sidekicks and then I'll start talking about Batman and Robin or the Lone Ranger and Tonto or, you know, illustrations like that. But you got a, a primary one that's ministering and then you got an assistant, a servant, somebody who's supporting, somebody who's helping to minister so that this guy can minister. Okay, we got biblical examples as well as worldly examples of this. And... Um, even the, the aspect of being more blessed to give than to receive, and even the concept of Jesus Christ telling his disciples, saying, you know, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And you can find the principles where it is, it is uh, when we talk about spiritual gifts in First Corinthians, we're going to be highlighting how those members which we esteem less are actually very needed in terms of the behind-the-scenes gifts and ministries and functions within a local church. Well, we'll deal with a lot of those things coming up. The Baptist understood that his purpose and work assignment was to exalt the one coming after him. John 3.28, we can relate it back to John 1.23, when all these minions kept coming to him. They, they wanted to know, all these agents, are you the Christ, are you Elijah, are you the prophet? Well, who are you then? <laughs> we've got to give an answer to the ones who sent us. We're, we're agents and minions and we have to report back. And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, I have a role to fulfill and my role is the herald. I'm here to introduce. See, kind of like Ed McMahon 
What was his role all those years? To give that here's Johnny kind of thing? And, and then Johnny Carson would come out. Okay? And who was the star of the show? It wasn't Ed McMahon. Although he kind of, you know, people liked him and whatever. And he was a good sidekick, a good second banana, so to speak. But there was no question who the top banana was. And so here's John the Baptist, and he gets to give his, here's Johnny presentation, and here comes Jesus Christ, and his job's done. The Baptist's job is done. He baptized Jesus Christ, he launched Christ into his ordained ministry, and he's very quickly going to be leaving the scene. The prophetic uh, anticipation of John the Baptist is Isaiah 40 in verse 3, Malachi 3 in verse 1. I won't return there this morning. Point E, uh, Point D. John the Baptist also understood his eschatological role as the friend of the bridegroom. John the Baptist also understood his eschatological role as the friend of the bridegroom. John 3.29 We've got some fun things to look forward to. Being the bride. Being married to our Savior Jesus Christ. Being presented to the Father spotless and blameless. Being dressed and prepared as a bride in our white garments bedecked with jewels because he's pleased to so uh, dress us accordingly. The uh, wedding supper, the wedding feast, the uh, to have the friends of the, uh, of the groom assembled, the friends of the bride assembled, all the invited guests, those that were uh, invited, those who chose not to come versus those who chose to come. There's a lot of teaching on the marriage supper of the Lamb, but we have a lot of neat things to look forward to. And the Baptist understood he's not the celebrity. He's simply the friend of the bridegroom. Point E. John the Baptist recognized that the will of God includes both increasing and decreasing. See, we don't like that in the 21st century American version of Christianity. Decreasing is bad. (laughs) To 21st century American merchandising, marketing, Christianity. Decreasing is bad. That's never good. See, there's no purpose-driven pop culture Christian manual out there on the shelves today that talks about decrease as a good thing. It's always increase. It's always more. How do we bring in more? How do we increase numbers, people, money, etc.? But sometimes decreasing is the will of God for blessing. Giving and taking away, as Job says in verse 21, when the Lord takes away, we should give the same praise, the same thanksgiving we gave when the Lord gives. That's a hard thing to deal with. Probably, if you don't have the maturity of Job, then uh, you're kind of like Mrs. Job, and you're not ready to give a thanksgiving for uh, when the Lord is taken away. Instead, you grumble. Because something was taken away. How about opening and closing of doors? Revelation 3, 7. Jesus Christ does both. Is he not worthy of being praised in both circumstances? Why is it that we praise the Lord and we celebrate, hey, an open door ministry, super. An open door has presented itself. And so we offer a Thanksgiving prayer. We want to be diligent. We want to go through the open door. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But why don't we have the same approach when he closes a door? Because he's still Jesus Christ. He's still the head of the church. He's still in charge. He knows what he's doing. All right? When he closes a door that no man can open. Revelation 3, 7. And we should be thankful because he knows better than we do at keeping us away from places where we don't need to be and where we'd get hurt if we tried to. You know what I'm saying? When he closes doors. I find it remarkable. Um... We've already dealt with David a little bit in some of these illustrations. He wanted to build a temple. The Lord closed that door and said, no, you can't build a temple. Your son Solomon is going to build a temple. And what did David do? He rejoiced. He said, who am I and what is my house that my son should be able to build a temple? If he was carnal, if he was immature, David would have, you know, grumbled, stomped his feet, gotten mad. What do you mean I can't build a temple? It's not fair. God won't let me build a temple. I want to build a temple. I want to do something for God. He won't let me. I'll show him. Right? Fine. I can't build a temple? Forget it then. I won't do anything. (laughs) Some believers get that, you know. 
there's an area of ministry they want to do and they find it's not God's will for them to do it or the pastor won't let them do it or whatever else happens, they can't do it. Then they get mad and they want to chunk everything. Well, fine then. I can't do this, then okay. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave the church. See, David celebrated. He said, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm not the one to build a temple. My son's going to build a temple. Super. Well, how about if I just finance the thing? Would that be all right? <laughs> and David laid aside treasure and he laid aside building materials and he contracted with the king of Tyre and he got all these things ready to go and he gave abundantly out of his treasuries. And he said, this is a privilege. Who am I that I should be able to give so much? The Lord closed a door and David was able to worship. I find it here in the book of Acts and we'll get to some of this as in Mr. Dowd's teaching. Um, I want you just to spot some things, though, in chapter 16. Join me there in Acts 16. We're almost done. I want to wrap up with this. And then next week we'll return to the content of the Baptist message from verses 31 through 36. And that will conclude chapter 3 of John. But let's close here in Acts 16. And, um, you know, the Lord opens doors. He closes doors. Uh, he's going to close the, the Barnabas door here, and Barnabas and Mark are going to go off at the end of chapter 15, and Paul and Silas are going to go off, and then they're going to find Timothy, so the Lord opens a door, and they're ministering. And just notice some things here. Verse 6 of Acts 16, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now there is a closed door. Now, Pete, Paul could have gotten mad and said, well, wait a minute. How come I can't go into Asia? I'm an apostle. I'm going to go into Asia. Later on, he will, but not at this time. Later on, he's going to live three years in Asia. He's going to, be, he's going to live in Ephesus. He's going to set up a headquarters there. He's going to write books. He's going to write First and Second Corinthians there. He's going to do all kinds of stuff in Asia. But not at this time. At this time, the door is closed. Why? Well, Lord's got that all worked out. I got some theories and some suspicions. I think it's because Peter was there and God didn't want him to step on each other's toes at the time. But whatever the case, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. So what does he do? Does he hang his head and say, well, fine, then I quit. I'm not going to be an apostle anymore. No, just keeps on going. Because if the doors are closing here, they're going to be opening somewhere else. So they came to Mysia. There, and they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. There's another closed door. So, fine, now am I going to stop my foot and get mad? No. Keep looking for the open door. Don't just grumble at what you can't do. Passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And if you, if you track the geography of this, they've now reached the edge of the, of the world, so to speak. They've reached the edge of Asia. They're out of Asia. There's nowhere else to turn. They're at the coast. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to us to Macedonia and help us. Ah, that's why he's closing all these doors, because we're about to leave Asia and cross the sea and go over here to Europe now. And all these other doors were closed, but now a great big door is opening in Europe. And they get to go across, and they find out that the man was, <laughs> the man in the dream was really a woman. He gets to Philippi, and he can find some ministry here in a uh, open door. But we could very easily see how Paul might have, with human viewpoint, gotten discouraged and said, I wanted to go into Asia, and he shut the door. I wanted to go into Bithynia, but he shut the door. I wanted to go into Mycenae. And, and everywhere he turned, the doors were closing, 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 closing. Is that a reason to grumble? No. It's a reason to celebrate because he's going to open a door somewhere and he's making it really obvious in divine guidance what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> All right. Think about how God guides and directs your decisions in your life and your circumstances and how when he makes his will known, how obvious it is. Because all these other things you were trying to do, he's just shut the door, shut the door, shut the door. So don't grumble about it. Rejoice over it and say, thank you, Lord, for being so faithful. See, if I would have pursued my own will, my own thing, I probably would have, you know, never would have been a pastor, that's for sure. I would have gone... Uh, gone back to school and become a homicide investigator and pursued a life in law enforcement and all kinds of other things. And, and, uh, but no, Lord shut those doors, slammed them hard. You start to say, hmm, 
Well, I'm going to grumble about this, or maybe the Lord's got something else in mind. All right. Finally, point five, and this is where we'll pick it up next week. John the Baptist understood the message that Jesus Christ was delivering. See, proximity to Jesus' ministry allowed John himself to get teaching. And even if his disciples were clueless as to what was going on, John was hearing loud and clear from the Nicodemus Nicodemus sermon. He was hearing loud and clear what really was going on, and he was cycling it through his own soul, and he was teaching it. And there's so many parallels between verses 31 and 36 to what Christ was teaching Nicodemus in uh, the first part of the chapter that we will observe those and uh, put some study into it next week to wrap that up. And then, with that concluding, we can look at chapter 4 and deal with this uh, woman here, this Samaritan woman at the well. Any questions before I close? All right. Well, if anything comes up, of course, we have question time tonight. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to guide and direct our paths. And I pray, Father, for humility. And I pray for open eyes. And I pray for the recognition of doors as they open and doors as they close. And a humility to accept your will and and an eagerness and a delight to be used by you as your tool for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.